We're going to jazz things up this afternoon with context-based sustainability. I hope you're ready. Um, <laughs> welcome. My name is Mike Bellamente. I'm the executive director of, of Climate Counts. We're a ratings organization up uh, at University of New Hampshire in Durham, New Hampshire, up north of Boston. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, <laughs> Sustainable Brands for having us present today. I'd also like to thank uh, Jed Richardson, who's joining us from uh, Johnson & Johnson. He's the uh, Global Energy Director. Um, I'd also like to thank Mark McElroy, who is the godfather of context-based sustainability. You're very lucky to have him here today. Um, he's also the Executive Director of the Center for Sustainable Organizations, um, who is our primary partner in, in running this study. Um, you'll notice that we have one empty chair up here, uh, and that was for Gretchen Hancock, who is uh, with General Electric, and unfortunately, Gretchen had uh, a minor mishap uh, this past weekend. She was in a, a, a car accident, nothing too serious, uh, but I hope you'll uh, join me in extending warm and positive thoughts her way as she recovers uh, from, from that accident. Um, so for today, uh, before I get started, I'm gonna, you, you had on your seats, uh, and if you didn't, um, we have handouts that describe uh, a little bit about context-based sustainability, a little bit about the study itself and, and why Climate Counts got involved. Uh, as, as a little bit further history of that, uh, Mark, um, actually I should also give a shout out to uh, another person who is very integral in seeing this project happen, that's Bill Bowie. Bill, Bill the Thrill, you in here? There he is. Excellent. So, so Bill and then CDP was very supportive and South Pole Carbon was supportive of us uh, and they were very helpful in getting us the data we needed to, to run this project. But it all started or culminated with a conversation that Mark and I had uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, and, and if you know Mark, uh, he's got a, a very polite way of beating you over the head until you, uh, until you see things his way. Uh, but uh, it all boiled down to the fact that, hey, Climate Counts, you, you guys have an awesome rating, a very respected uh, rating, and, and I love it, but you're, you're missing a big piece of the puzzle, and that's assessing company performance through the lens of climate science. Um, and then he went into the carbon, uh, the context-based metric, and uh, basically at the end of the phone call, I got off the phone and said to myself, uh, wow, that guy is very smart, um, and I have no idea what he just told me. So, <laughs> um, But he's been able to nurture me along to the point that now I absolutely get why uh, this is, is a very important to uh, how, how we see uh, corporate emissions performance, uh, and I think that uh, hopefully within the next hour, uh, we'll get this across in a way that uh, you can digest what it means and, and how we got here. Um, for Climate Counts, why context? Uh, so most folks know our rating system. It's, it's a very simple 100-point uh, scorecard. The closer to, to zero you are, the worse you're doing. The closer to 100, the better you're doing uh, with our stuck starting, striding, and now soaring categories. Uh, it's a 22-criteria scorecard that we use to date. Uh, measure across the four pillars of how well is a company measuring and, uh, and, and reducing their emissions, what kind of strategies do they have in place to reduce their emissions. And then on the other side, are they reporting out to CDP, are they self-reporting, uh, and do they take a, a stance on policy? 
And as, as Mark pointed out, uh, we don't have anything that just boils it down to one thing. Is it enough? Are companies doing enough for reducing their share, enough of their share of emissions, uh, to avert a climate crisis? Uh, so that was uh, – it boiled it down enough for us to say, you know what, this is, this is interesting, and it's worth taking a, a shot at, uh, at, at seeing what is meant by context-based sustainability. Let me be very clear that uh, we do an annual release of our, our rating. Uh, this is – we're still going to do an annual release of our traditional rating. This is a very uh, separate study uh, that we're just wanting to, to look at things through the lens of client, climate science. Uh, and we're also going to probably inform our future ratings uh, with context sustainability uh, in, in our future ratings process. But we'll inform the marketplace when that does happen. So a um, couple things to think about. Uh, taking off your sustainability practitioner hats and thinking as a, a, a member of society or a citizen of society. Um, so four-fifths uh, of the world's biggest companies, the Global 500, uh, are, are reporting their emissions, disclosing their emissions to CDP to date, uh, and they are actively engaged in reducing emissions. Uh, on the flip side of that, uh, our climate count scores have improved 60 percent uh, since we first started scoring in 2007. Uh, and the reason that's important is because we're seeing that uh, an absolute tremendous rate of uh, improvement by companies that are willing to disclose and how they're uh, reducing their emissions and strategies they're taking. Uh, we're seeing uh, leaps and bounds uh, of, of what's going on uh, on our scorecard. Uh, but what it boils down to is, is it enough? And as we see um, our global community blowing by the 400 parts per million of atmospheric carbon mark, uh, we can see as much as we want all the backslapping of, hey, we're doing great, and oh, scores are improving. Uh, but what it boils down to at the end of the day uh, is Mother Nature doesn't care how much scores improve. We have to be able to assess uh, if it's enough and start managing towards, towards real targets uh, that put uh, our performance through the lens of something much greater than uh, a 22-question scorecard, but rather a one or a zero. Are we sustainable or are we not? Um, and granted, as you'll see, uh, as you get to learn the metric and as you get to learn what we're doing, uh, there are a lot of external factors at play. There, it's, it's very difficult. It's not very black and white all the time. Uh, but we think uh, when we first undertook this, this uh, project, that is absolutely, just because it's difficult, doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Uh, and as we go through it, uh, refining uh, the model and um, if, if we need to. Uh, but the very, very idea is that we got to get to a point where we're saying, okay, are we reducing our emissions enough as companies and as a society as a whole? Uh, so enter then, again, uh, a year ago, Mark coming to us and saying, uh, well, maybe we should do a pilot study that uh, puts a certain universe of companies together and looks at their uh, carbon emissions and, and puts them through this metric. Um, and that's basically our release will be in December of our uh, formal findings. Uh, what you have, what we're going to go through today are just some of the raw data numbers and, and what things are looking like, but we'll have a, a fancy report and a, an actual uh, a analysis to go along with our report and to bring you uh, what we consider the world's first 
context-based sustainability ranking in the capital market. So uh, with that, I'm going to kick it over to Mark, who will tell you about the metric itself, and uh, he can explain uh, the, the, the madness behind the method. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. I know uh, many of you in the audience, but let me just first uh, ask, how many of you uh, have heard of context-based metrics before? It would be useful to, to know. Okay. And how many of you uh, that have heard of them before think you actually know what they are? <laughs> A smaller number. Very, very interesting. Well, the first thing I want to do is um, uh, give you a brief tutorial on what context-based metrics are and then in particular what this context-based metric uh, is and, uh, and how it works. Um, first of all, uh, it's important to differentiate between context-based metrics and what I'll just refer to broadly as conventional sustainability metrics, which typically take the form of uh, absolute, uh, you know, gross measures of impacts of one kind or another, uh, and relative metrics, which would be expressed in terms like emissions per, you know, fill in the blank, emissions per unit of production, emissions per dollar, emissions per employee, or what have you. Um, unlike conventional metrics, context-based metrics uh, express performance relative to uh, norms, standards, or thresholds for what impacts would have to be in order to be sustainable. So context-based metrics, unlike the others, bring sustainability thresholds, uh, which very often are science-based, uh, ecological, bring these thresholds explicitly into play in the metrics themselves instead of, uh, in a sense, leaving them out. In the case of carbon, the thresholds uh, of interest to us are expressed as concentration limits in the atmosphere, you know, ultimately grounded in the climate science, um, but um, uh, represent uh, uh, limited capacity, the limited absorptive capacity of the environment to accept and, and uh, process, if you will, anthropogenic emissions. So what you're looking at in the graphics on this slide are just some examples of uh, charts taken from uh, the climate science. And so in the upper hand, the upper right corner, for example, you see um, a graph uh, in which there are five uh, science-based climate change mitigation models represented. And essentially, if you sort of follow the traje trajectory of each one of these five, you see they level out at some point in time. Uh, and these are referred to as climate change stabilization models. So these are, these are science-based models that have defined uh, targets for CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. and um, are, are designed accordingly, grounded in, in the climate science. And then just below that, you see the corresponding emissions trajectories that, according to the science, would have to be adhered to in order to achieve the concentration targets. So in both cases, if you look at the, uh, the curve at the bottom, the curve at the bottom of the concentration trajectory uh, graph represents uh, achievement of 350 parts per million CO2 by a specified point in time. So that's essentially a, a target. 
And then uh, corresponding to that, in this particular example of a, of a science-based model, you see in the lower chart the emission trajectory uh, at the bottom that would have to be followed or adhered to in order to uh, reverse climate change and restore CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere to safe levels, or 350 parts per million, at least according to this this model. So these are examples of the science-based models that we're able to take and then use as a basis for setting sustainability performance thresholds at the level of individual organizations. And that's exactly what we've done in our metric, and you'll see how that works in a minute. So uh, this is how we we build a context-based me metric, a context-based carbon metric in particular, and this is how we did it in this case. Um, we've got a metric that we first started working on uh, seven or eight years ago, actually, initially with Ben and Jerry's, and um, the metric has been uh, refined and approved ever since. But the first step in uh, developing a context-based carbon metric for application at an individual company level, or in this case, at a market level um, uh, for a field of uh, 100 companies, in this case, is to choose a science-based mitigation scenario. So what, in other words, is the sort of end-state target that we want to uh, incorporate into our metric? And in this case, we chose uh, a model referred to as Polestar, and uh, it actually is uh, a, uh, a model that was developed um, in Boston by TELUS, the TELUS Institute, uh, which is represented here today by Alan White um, in the audience. And uh, the model that we chose uh, is, a, again, a TELUS-developed uh, uh, model that has 350 parts per million CO2 uh, as its target uh, state. Um, that model also has, uh, you know, all of these metrics sort of play out over a period of multiple years because climate change mitigation is a multi-year uh, proposition. And they typically begin with uh, a baseline year. Um, the baseline year in the case of the Polestar model that we're using is 2005. And um, for various reasons, we then express an organization's actual baseline year emissions in 2005 uh, as its emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP. We then set reduction targets per dollar of contribution to GDP for all of the downstream years, and those reduction targets are determined by the science-based model that we've selected. So in this case, if there's a 2% reduction in emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP in 2006 over 2005 levels, that's only because that's the reduction level specified in the science-based model that we've chosen. And we do the same thing for every, every year thereafter. Um, we're then able to compare actual company emissions in the baseline year to uh, reduction targets and actual company emissions uh, in all of the subsequent years to uh, reduction targets, all per dollar of contribution to GDP. Now, at this point, uh, I would say shift your, your focus to the, the, the graphic on the right. Like all context-based metrics, whether it be for carbon, water, waste, 
or social sustainability impacts of one kind or another. Um, we express these metrics in the form of a quotient with a numerator and a denominator. The numerator represents the, a measure of the actual impacts. So here again, uh, this would be a measure of an organization's actual emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP in any given year. The denominator is an expression of the science-based threshold, or in this case, the, the, uh, a, a level of emissions that should not be exceeded per dollar of contribution to GDP in order for the organization's emissions to be uh, considered sustainable, uh, which is another way of saying in order to be consistent with the science-based model that we've chosen. And so in any given year, uh, the, uh, the quotient, the ratio of actual over normative emissions will produce a numerical score. And very simply, any score of less than or equal to 1.0 signifies sustainable performance because it means actual emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP um, are no greater than the maximum allowable level specified in the uh, science-based model. Now, uh, the, the last point here is, um, you know, there are lots of sort of moving uh, balls in the air with, with a metric like this. Organizations themselves are never standing still. They're constantly changing size. You've got the economy around them that's fluctuating. And in order to keep this thing um, coherent over a multi-year period of time, we need to make various adjustments, um, and we do. And we can talk about some of those uh, later. Uh, but for now, let me just say that's one of the reasons why we tie emissions to GDP, because GDP data sets are ubiquitous. And uh, it's also very easy for us to determine what an organization's individual contribution to GDP is. So we can always, we can always map the size of an organization to the size of the system in which it is, it is operating. All right, so I'm going to stop with that for now, and we'll be happy to answer more questions about the metric itself uh, shortly. Back to Mike. Yeah, we're going to have a whole question and answer period at the end after we do our discussion with, um, with Jed, so uh, we'll be able to get in the weeds uh, however, deeply, however deeply you want. Uh, but as you can see, he's, that's why Mark is the brains of the operation, right? Um, when I, I struggle to uh, tell my friends about this, and uh, so I, I, not that this audience needs it to be dumbed down at all, but um, if I say to my wife that I, um, I reduced my cheeseburger intake 20% from last year and I plan to do the same for next year, she might be amused and very proud of me. Uh, but if I forget to mention that my doctor has advised me to abstain from bacon cheeseburgers completely, uh, or I'll die by the time I'm 40, uh, which you might have seen, I use a similar analogy in, in, <laughs> in the Sustainable Brands article. Uh, but the, I'm leaving out a very uh, critical piece of information, uh, and that's where if you look at just uh, absolute or relative emissions, it's great to tell uh, emissions performance for the company itself, uh, but it really doesn't tell the entire story of how well a company is performing with regard uh, to the atmosphere itself or uh, the environment around it. So uh, this is what we're, we're trying to accomplish uh, through doing this study. Um, we've, uh, for the purpose of the study, um, 
we selected a uh, hundred companies, um, give or take. Uh, we we looked back at their emissions performance uh, to 2005, uh, and so if you ask why we chose a hundred companies, uh, one of the answers I'll give you is that um, well, there's not that many companies who have been disclosing their emissions scope one and two since that, uh, 2005, uh, so that immediately. Uh, narrowed down the number of companies that we felt uh, could adequately uh, fit uh, our our study, uh, and that had uh, we were confident enough uh, of of their uh, the emissions that they did report. Uh, again, we we are looking at scope one and two emissions. So immediately, I'm sure ears will prick up. Well, what about a, a bank whose whose emissions are largely uh, scope three or, or downstream, or the manufacturer who's uh, getting all of their um, manufactured goods supplied from an upstream third party? But uh, there's reasons for that that relate to double counting, uh, which which Mark will be happy to go into later. Um, as I mentioned before, we couldn't have done this without the help of, of, uh, of CDP, uh, allowing us uh, to access their data uh, back to 2005. And for the years that uh, there were gaps or, or, or major inconsist inconsistencies, uh, we, we employed the help of South Pole Carbon to help level out uh, some of those uh, trajectories for us. And they have a trust metric that's uh, very well regarded that helped us uh, accomplish that. Um, some of the top-level highlights uh, immediately off, uh, you know, when, when, if you were to ask me uh, from the get-go on this, this study uh, what, you know, my, what I would think would happen as I think, you know, maybe a handful of companies were, were actually sustainable uh, if you looked at it through the, their emissions reduction. But what actually ended up happening is uh, about half, so about 50 of the uh, 100 companies that we looked at uh, scored sustainably through the context-based metric, and 50 uh, scored unsustainably through our metric. Um, four of the companies uh, that uh, are in the metric uh, have a history of using context-based uh, context uh, approach to, to measuring and performing performance when it comes to their emissions. Um, three of those scored uh, in the top 10 uh, on this uh, on this this metric, which stands to reason, um, the next couple slides uh, I'm going to go through are the actual companies themselves in the top, the companies that scored in the top ten most sustainable, uh, if you want to use that word, and then the bottom ten uh, least sustainable through this metric. So before we do that, if there's representatives of the companies in this room, uh, could you please leave? <laughs> Um, no, but I, I absolutely, having done this uh, for the last several years, I, I am very sensitive to the fact of uh, when you're, you're saying anything about a company, if there's a representative of that company, they take those things very personally, as they should, because you're, you're talking about somebody that they, uh, that's where they spend most of their life. Uh, so uh, when, when you look at the results of this uh, today and then when the report comes out, Realize that the reason we're saying these things is not to shame companies. I mean, for for the largest part, we're picking companies that have been disclosing their emissions to 2000 since 2005, which automatically says a lot about the universe of companies we're looking at. Um, we're, we're, we're doing this for the sake of moving the conversation forward, and what we hope is that you know this this notion of context will be popularized and institutionalized and uh, and and. and 
uh, formalized in a way uh, that helps sustainability practitioners um, really bring this uh, back to their own companies and employ uh, this metric for the sake of informing uh, their their goal setting uh, processes. So, uh, with that, um, the top ten scores uh, on our scorecard uh, for this. Study was uh, Autodesk, led by Autodesk, uh, who's known as a pioneer uh, in this space of context-based sustainability. Um, you'll see a couple others that uh, wouldn't strike you as, um, as as surprises. Well, at least for me, who have uh, I've been doing these ratings for a while, um, you see pharmaceutical companies like Eli Lilly, Abbott Labs, in there. Uh, they're usually buttoned up when it comes to uh, emissions performance. L'Oreal is, is a leader uh, on our scorecard, as is Unilever in our traditional scorecard uh, in terms of reducing their emissions. Uh, GE, obviously, who is meant to be here. Uh, Reckitt, Ben Kieser. Um, a couple, the, the auto manufacturers, those were surprises for me, uh, so Ford and Hyundai. Um, uh, again, you're looking at scope one and two, so you're looking at their direct emissions as, as companies themselves and not the downstream emissions of uh, the, the people burning the, the petrol or the gas in the cars that, are, uh, that are, they're, they're manufacturing. So uh, on the, the bottom ten scores list, um, again, you can cut this in a lot of ways. You, you see uh, Wells Fargo and Royal Bank of Scotland represented. Uh, you see UPS. Uh, who is traditionally one of the highest performers on our, on our 22 criteria scorecard, scoring unsustainably in this instance, um, as is uh, Molson Coors, who is traditionally a, a perennial decent scorer on our, our traditional scorecard. So um, it, it's amazing because, it, again, if you look at this, so we, we also realize that a lot of companies assess performance through intensity, through uh, emissions per uh, dollar of revenue or per dollar of sales. Uh, so we said, okay, well, let's, let's look at some graphical analysis or some correlations here to see if, uh, if you're performing well uh, with regard to intensity, would you be performing well uh, on, our, on this context-based metric? Uh, and what we found essentially is that there is no correlation whatsoever. Uh, so you could be, uh, you know, for Autodesk, you're ranked number one, you're ranked sixth in intensity, whereas Ford ranked 98th in their intensity performance, uh, and Unilever ranked in the bottom half uh, based on intensity alone. Um, so, so that type of analysis allows you to see, okay, well, what they're measuring, what, what companies might be saying, okay, we're, we're touting this as something that we're doing really well. We've reduced our emissions 30% per dollar of revenue, 30% per product manufactured. That might be sending a signal to the market that's, that's really not accurate. Uh, and I think that's, that's what this really boils down to is, uh, are we telling the story as accurately as it needs to be told? Um, so, uh, and, and with that, um, I'd also like to mention that, uh, surprisingly, 19 of the 51 companies that scored sustainably uh, actually had higher absolute emissions in 2012 than they did in 2005. Um, so there, there is a, a, an ability to decouple, as I'm sure any of the sustainability folks in the room, you want to know if you can grow as a company. That's, that's the whole thing. You have to be able to prove that you can grow and make the business case for sustainability. Uh, so it was uh, remarkable to us to see that. And 
for fear of bastardizing why that happens, I, I would just like to Mark to maybe comment on how that is is possible. Can you hear me? Is this working? Well, um, this is attributable to one of the variables in uh, the metric um, that functions uh, very analogously to uh, kind of a a cap-and-trade mechanism where uh, in the metric we make it possible for uh, organizations to acquire uh, higher levels of entitlements to emit, if you will, despite the fact that the allowable emissions per dollar of contribution are going down every year uh, by um, taking uh, account of uh, an organization's overall contributions to GDP. So if the rate of growth of an organization's contributions to GDP is exceeding the rate at which the required decrease in allowable emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP is going down, uh, then it's possible for overall uh, emissions, allowable emissions, uh, as a threshold to, to be going up. But this is a, a, a zero-sum game or a zero-sum metric. If one organization's overall levels of, of, of allowable emissions are going up, it's only because at least one other organization's allowable emissions are, are going down. And no matter what's happening, when you take the overall level of, of allowable emissions uh, by all entities uh, within uh, GDP, all GDP contributing entities, and you add them up, if you will, and this is, this is a step that we take in this, this metric, it will always be the case that the uh, collectively allowable uh, emissions in any given year do not exceed the overall allowable level specified in the science-based model. So we have a, the, a mechanism that allows entitlements to emit to essentially shift around within the GDP community based on individual organizations' contributions uh, to GDP. And that's one of the ways that we are able to adjust for changes in organizational size and changes in organizational circumstances over an extended multi-year period of time. Let me just say one other thing about this. Uh, this is a, uh, a function or a feature within the metric that is absolutely critical from our standpoint uh, because it not only handles the sort of technical issue of how do we adjust for changes in organizational size, it also creates an incentive for organizations that want to participate in achieving uh, a science-based climate change mitigation goal to, in fact, get involved. Uh, because, as Mike points out, this is a mechanism that doesn't penalize organizations for growing, uh, but instead uh, provides them with an incentive to uh, uh, use a metric like this uh, that is science-based and uh, that uh, contributes to reversal of climate change and restoration of greenhouse uh, gases in the atmosphere to safe levels. Excellent. Thanks. So um, before we kick it out to the audience for questions, um, we're going to have Jed, we're going to transition and have Jed up here for a little discussion. 
Um, and, and hopefully we're going to ask the questions that, that you might uh, have to answer uh, if you were to um, want to engage in, in this type of, of metric or, or process. Um, so, Jed, uh, <laughs> what do you love about context? <laughs> no, uh, putting aside that, that J&J uh, has scored well uh, in, in this particular study, um, do you think it's, it's necessary or relevant uh, for companies to aspire to using science-based targets uh, and goals, uh, such as 350 parts per million, to inform their own GHG goal-setting processes? And not to lead the witness, but we did hire you, so you would say the right thing. <laughs> well, you know, without Gretchen from GE here, I kind of feel like the sacrificial corporate guy up here, so hopefully you can answer Slay him! Right. Stone him! Uh, maybe just uh, a bit of background about myself before I answer that uh, leading question, Mike. So I'm responsible for the Global Energy Program at Johnson & Johnson, and I'm the lucky guy who gets to do our corporate greenhouse gas accounting for the enterprise globally. And I, I got to say, it's a very challenging, it's a very challenging exercise every year that we have to go through. So anything that helps simplify the process, I'm all in favor for. And from the beginning, when CDP started to gain traction, for me, it was both challenging and helpful because they asked harder questions, but then fewer people were asking those same questions. So I, I'd like to see that continuing. And I, I could say on, on the science-based goals for Johnson & Johnson, uh, we've been trying to set science-based goals for a long time in this area. We, we've had uh, greenhouse gas emissions goals now for, I think, about 15 years. And the latest goal that we set in 2009 was based on the latest science at the time. It was about a 2% reduction per year over a 10-year period of time. And then, unfortunately, since then, um, we, we recently participated in the 3% um, solution study that was put together by the CDP and the World Wildlife Foundation. And now it, it appears as though we should be targeting a 3% reduction per year goal in an absolute way for, for U.S.-based corporations. So we try to keep up, but unfortunately, um, you know, the climate's changing on an ongoing basis. Uh, as far as, as, far as uh, context-based metrics, you know, we, we haven't really – been big fans in the past for intensity targets because everybody seemed to put an intensity target out there that was favorable to them, whether it was based on their revenue or pounds of product or something like that. So we've tried to submit our data in an absolute way, but the challenge with that is that even within the new CDP's framework, companies can submit very different kinds of data. And I think um, Mark and I experienced that when we first started talking about this goal where we went through a few, a few revisions based on the data that was available publicly and, and the data that they were really looking for. So even, you know, in my role, when I'm trying to compare myself to, to my competitors, it's difficult for me to look at their scores, even in the CDP, and make sense of them without getting into the nitty-gritty detail of what's in the footnotes of that particular number that they're reporting. And I'll give you an example. Um, within Scope 1 Emissions, I think companies have gotten very good over, over recent years um, submitting data related to their facilities. So uh, fuel that they burn in their, in their boilers or in their operations. But a lot of times um, they may not be reporting fuel related to their sales fleet or to their logistics operations. 
or refrigerant emissions, fugitive type emissions, or their aviation emissions, things like that. So uh, while one company might report all those sources within their scope one number in the CDP, uh, another company might just report one of those sources within their scope one number. So when you're trying to compare yourself to other companies, it's very challenging to do so. And I think uh, trying to break through that and, and break down those, those silos and figure this out is, is the right way to go. And that's why I'm here today. Do you see that getting better, just kind of as a aside? Do you think uh, it's <clears throat> since 2005, and I say this from the experience of having to dig through that 2005 data that was all over the place to, well, seemingly, uh, to 2012, where everybody seems to be getting a better handle. Obviously, the GHG protocol helps that process along. Uh, is it becoming more that you can see apples to apples versus apples to who knows what? You know, it's interesting. Over the last few years, I actually think it had gotten worse. But I think we're right on the, on the verge of something happening where it's going to get a lot better. So, you know, WRI is going to modify their greenhouse gas protocol. I think they're out for public comment or will be soon. And they're going to recommend that now there's, there's parallel accounting for corporations. So corporations can report their actual emissions for the properties and the emissions factors in those locations and then also the emissions associated with what they procure or how they procure that energy. And that's been very confusing to the public and I think even within the companies to figure out because there's many different forces that I have to deal with on a regular basis. I'm kind of at the nexus between like an engineering and environmental group, the financial accounting group, and the marketing group, and everybody kind of wants to look at numbers in a different way. And uh, I think the fact that the World Resources Institute is getting more prescriptive in what they're asking in the greenhouse gas protocol, which then the CDP will follow, will allow some of this noise to be eliminated and get us to a point where we're actually looking at maybe not apples to apples, but, you know, apples to something very close to apples. So uh, that's what I'd like to see happen, and I think it's going to get there in, in the next few years for sure. Yeah, Mark, did you want to add anything about that, about where WRI and your conversations have been going to them? Yeah, uh, just briefly, um, some of us in the room are involved now with uh, WRI uh, in the development of context-based, uh, let's just call it uh, companion guidance for measuring and reporting greenhouse gas emissions in a context-based fashion. So I would expect to see something coming out of the WRI within the next, certainly within the next year, um, along these lines. And not to mention, I, I know uh, Alan is here from uh, uh, TELUS, uh, but GISR, uh, that whole project with, with looking at ratings organizations and assessing, I know that's one of their foundational principles is, are you measuring companies uh, with any degree of context? Uh, right. The yeah. GISR has also embraced sustainability context uh, and is and will continue to be advocating for uh, assessments of sustainability performance using context-based principles. Um, GRI, for its part, uh, has at least in principle been calling for context-based measurement and reporting for over a decade now. Uh, now, again, as, as I mentioned, we see it happening with the greenhouse gas protocol. And uh, so it's an idea that's really starting to penetrate uh, the field. Excellent. Um, so, Jed, back to you. As the uh, 
the sacrificial uh, corporate sustainability guy in the room, uh, or at least at the front of the room. Um, whether it's at J&J &J or whether you're, uh, you are one of your competitors in an, another competing company, uh, and you're trying to bring this idea of context-based metrics, um, just from what you know of, of them already, what would you see as maybe opportunities uh, and then also maybe obstacles? Uh, so as you uh, try to get your CFO on board or as you try to uh, develop internal stakeholder support uh, for going down this path, um, what would you see as, as, as some of those initial opportunities and barriers? Yeah, I mean, from a, a corporate perspective, you, your company is constantly talking about growth, right? So if you are a sustainability person and you, and you can only focus on what you're reducing, what your cost savings, the projects you're, you're doing associated with that, it's hard to kind of get in tune with the, uh, the C-suite on, on what they're looking for because they're, they're going to look at growth. So any metric that's going to allow you to grow but allow you to grow responsibly, I think, is going to be seen in a very positive light. And I, I do think the key to the whole thing, kind of a, something to watch out for, is the idea of transparency, not only transparency from the corporations, because I think the corporations are trying to be as transparent as they can be um, within the context of their business, but also the transparency within you know, the NGOs and the rating communities, because we participate in numerous surveys or public surveys and oftentimes we don't we don't even know how it's rated or you know what kind of um, tools are using to rate the data uh, we recently had an experience with this with uh, Dow Jones sustainability index where we rated very high on our climate strategy within carbon disclosure project then we had a, a significant percentage drop in the Dow Jones uh, with the same exact questions so it's it's hard for us to uh, kind of make everyone happy all the time. So sure. I think having transparency in those surveys helps us as well because it knows it, it tells us what you're looking for and it allows us to answer the questions in the right way, um, similar to how Mark and I got to a place where we, we provided him the numbers that he actually needed to put this, uh, this metric together. Absolutely. And if I'm not mistaken, Mark, uh, the context-based metric is, uh, it is in the public domain um, and we are yeah. going to have some way of, of kind of publicizing the yeah, metric. the metric itself, uh, if you go to, our, we're a nonprofit, if you go to our homepage, uh, there's a link to another page that describes the metric in full detail, and the metric itself is freely downloadable. So anyone interested in using this metric, uh, it's yours to use as you, you like. Um, yeah. Excellent. Uh, so one more question, a little bit higher level, Jed, and then we'll, we'll kick it out to the audience. Is uh, So yesterday I saw in Green Business coverage of uh, the release of the S&P 500 uh, CDP report, uh, it, it noted that J&J uh, &J had lost approximately a week of employee productivity uh, due to Superstorm super Sandy. Uh, you're seeing a lot more climate risk uh, being talked about uh, across the corporate community as a whole. Uh, has that influenced any of the decisions that are made at your level on how you're going about uh, with your um, maybe not just emissions target but as your sustainability program and the messaging around that say hey climate change is here we have to act as uh, good stewards uh, and, and really move it forward yeah absolutely so you know being based in the, the northeast in New Brunswick New Jersey we uh, we took the brunt of Sandy there and we, we had we had a lot of uh, issues associated with that 
and maybe not so much on the carbon emission side. I mean, the conversation is certainly getting louder. It's getting easier to have these conversations in the corporate environment. Um, but I think what's really changed in the last couple years has been water. So water for us, um, you know, we've always had goals associated with it, but it, it hasn't had the, the element of risk that it has now today, especially as companies like mine are growing in Asia. And in Asia, the, the water issue out there is increasingly a problem. So uh, we've actually had to reevaluate, you know, sourcing of new facilities or locations of new facilities, um, you know, where we want to where we want to manufacture goods in the future based on the water problems in that region of the world. So I think the conversation is getting a lot louder, and I only see that increasing moving forward. Absolutely. Great. Thank you for your, your time. Um, and uh, that actually is uh, a good segue because I know Mark is, has a, a suite of metrics, not just carbon-related, but there is a water and a waste metric uh, that he'd be happy to, to tell you about as well. Um, but before um, we let him do any of that, uh, are there questions from the audience that we could take? We'll start with Gil and then come forward to Sean. Yeah, back to this. Um, I have a of question. I think it's, this is a really important addition to the dialogue. We have absolute metrics and relative metrics as context metrics. They're all important. They each disclose a different thing. Well, just like you can't see the world effect based on one eye or the other eye, we both give it depth. We need a combination of metrics to do that. With that, I have a little question. Can you go back a slide? If, um, Is that the slide, Gil? Yeah. yeah. 19 of the 51 companies scored sustainable in this measure. And yet, that absolute, higher absolute vision. So, as we heard earlier, you know, the environment doesn't, the, the atmosphere doesn't care about our metrics. The atmosphere cares about, about total loading of carbon into the confidence of that system. So if this, if I'm reading this correctly, it's telling you that these companies are doing better, so they're putting more problem. I feel like a breakdown of model. Am I misunderstanding something? And, and we tried to clarify that a little bit, and we know that's it, an objection that's going to come up, uh, and that's why I always point to Mark to, to uh, answer <laughs> that. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea. No. I, um, <laughs> beats me. Uh, <laughs> um, again, this is very analogous, if you could think of, the, of a cap-and-trade system and how that works. Well, in a cap-and-trade system, it is also possible for some organizations to emit more in downstream years than they did in upstream years. Uh, and... In principle, what's going on there is there is a there's an allocation mechanism going on that makes it possible for entitlements to emit to shift around within a population of emitters uh, under the influence of some mechanism, even as overall emissions in the aggregate are coming down. Okay, and that's the way this metric works. It's not a cap and trade system, of course. Uh, I sometimes refer to it as a cap and grade system, where um, the higher your contributions to GDP, which in some folks' minds is a measure of, of uh, you know, contribution of value to society, uh, the more entitlements you're uh, uh, given to emit, even though 
again, your allowable emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP are always going down, no matter what. But if your total volume of dollars of contribution to GDP are increasing, uh, then at a higher the, rate, the multi at a higher rate, then the, the multiplier effect uh, is in fact exactly what's what's going on here. So the only way to get this kind of result is where your actual absolute emissions are going uh, up, not down, is if your allowable emissions are also going up, not down. And so we, we, that's the sort of cap and grade mechanism. And as I say earlier, um, you know, it's probably, you know, maybe the most contra controversial aspect of this metric, but it's also the one aspect that makes it attractive for organizations uh, who are, um, you know, who view, uh, uh, you know, any, any sort of target or mitigation goal that translates into uh, stop growing uh, as dead on arrival. And from our standpoint, if we can address that need while at the same time, uh, uh, you know, advocating for use of a metric that is tied to a science-based model for reversing climate change, you know, what's, what's not the like about that? Shauna, you had your hand up first, yeah. and then I... I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit why you chose not to include scope three. I've heard that scope three, you know, wasn't duplicating, but if, for many companies, the majority of their impact from material standpoints in scope three, you know, continue to have them only focus on one and two, that kind of part of the problem as well. So yeah. kind of how do you address that? And if I could piggyback on that real quickly, say you had two apparel companies and one manufactures everything in-house and the other outsources everything, mm -hmm. would they not end up with very different scores simply because they chose mm -hmm. different business models? Do you want to comment on that or should I? Okay, so um, this is just a, um, you know, it's a, it's a boundary choice. We we need to make boundary decisions with a with a metric like this, but it's also a reflection of the um, frankly the the difficulty in finding you know finding a hundred companies that are tracking scopes one and two back to two thousand five is one thing, finding a hundred companies that are also tracking scope three is another. I mean it's it's uh, you know very difficult if not um, impossible uh, to do at this point. But it also raises the kind of double counting uh, issues that Mike alluded to earlier, which is uh, we need to make sure that if we're including scope three emissions in, say, J&J's numbers, that its suppliers whose numbers are being included in J&J's numbers are not including the same numbers in their numbers. Um, and their suppliers, uh, suppliers and so on and so forth. Um, so I think this is really a... Um, you know, there's some practical reasons why we didn't do it this way. Uh, is this metric incapable of, of being run with scope three? No, it's not. Uh, the metric is, in effect, um, uh, neutral on the subject, indifferent. If you want to include scope three, you can. If you want to include just scope one, you can. It's really any combination as long as the, the measurement uh, and data collection uh, effort in support of it has integrity and is, you know, free of, of, of double counting. Uh, so this is just a function of the question we asked. The question we asked is, uh, are the scope one and two emissions of these companies sustainable? 
and maybe I could just add to that real quick. For us, you know, scope three is an incredibly challenging topic, and I think it's for most corporations are experiencing the same thing. I mean, scope one and two for us is an incredibly challenging topic to get that data in it in a transparent way out to the public. We are probably years away from having any kind of accurate scope three data available. When we have a enormously complex value chain. We have probably over 80,000 suppliers out there. And like Mark mentioned, our scope three is someone else's scope one or two. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I would agree that going right to scope three at this point in time is just not going to make any sense because you're not going to be able to compare any kind of similar data between corporations. Go ahead, sir. Uh, commodity price volatility. So let's say oil. Uh, could you uh, amplify? How does this control for like commodity price volatility? So let's say oil explodes, you know, price of oil explodes, also you know contribution to GDP goes up uh, significantly, emissions level in terms of the overall production. The only thing we do with, with, with GDP in this metric is we adjust for inflation and we normalize it to the baseline year. Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, I think uh, for our purposes it could stay the same. Uh, the only difference is the, the baseline year emissions would be different, but uh, that would ripple through the, the rest of the year, so that wouldn't present a, a problem for us. It would simply show up as a you know, higher... Uh, quantity of emissions per dollar of contribution to GDP only because it includes scope three, not just scopes one and two. So it wouldn't automatically screw you? No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. As long as you're using the same kind of definition of scope from, you know, for all of the years, uh, that would not be a problem. We have one back here. Another study we're currently involved in where we are taking this sector uh, perspective, uh, breaking up the, the, the companies into different sectors, and we'll be doing applying the same metric and looking at things that way, and you know, I'm sure uh, you know, drawing some different conclusions. One thing I would say, though, about the UPS versus the Autodesk 
comparison is that don't forget for every company in this metric their starting point is whatever their actual emissions were in the baseline year um, and so um, you know in a sense uh, you know you you could say that um, uh, you know you know, you could even say Autodesk was at a disadvantage because their emissions were already so much lower than everybody else's because they're, they're a software company. Um, whereas a company like UPS, you know, is a heavy emitter uh, in the baseline year, and shouldn't there have been more low-hanging fruit uh, for, for a company like that? And why is it that a company like, uh, you know, a software company is able to do so much better over, over time relative to their own baseline year. So there's some amount of sector, uh, there's a sector um, uh, flavor or, or spin, if you will, that is already built into the numbers because the starting point that we assign for every company is specific to them and is presumably reflective of their sector, already reflective of their sector. But how does improvement over baseline not penalize companies that were already doing well in the baseline year versus those that were doing poorly and then later decided to improve? Um, that, could, that could occur, and I'm sure it does occur. Uh, you know, if you pick 2005 as your baseline year and you're you know, harvested the low-hanging fruit, if you will. Um, but another way of looking at it, another way uh, that a company like that could sort of re reverse that effect would be by, uh, in this metric anyway, by increasing its proportionate contribution to GDP, um, where its entitlements um, to emit by virtue of that mechanism uh, would actually uh, go up and would not stay flat, if you will. And a lot of this, back to uh, the lady's point, um, is, is how we frame this up when we do uh, release our results to, to bring that sector parity issue into play, to bring the scope three emissions right out in front saying, hey, we realize that A, B, and C is also happening, but this is what we're hoping to achieve through this analysis and through the, uh, uh, I don't know, what you want, the the promotion of a context-based uh, metric. So we're, we're, there are some refinements being made, and there's different ways to look at this, and that's why I think it's a conversation that needs to be had all the time, but um, this is why it's a new metrics conference and not an old metrics conference. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have time for one more question, and then uh, go ahead, and then Alan, and then we'll close it down. We alluded to emerging water metrics. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, well, as, a, as an organization, our goal has been to develop a portfolio of context-based metrics over time. Some of the ones we've uh, gotten pretty far along with are, of course, carbon. Uh, water is another one. Uh, waste is another one, and we have a sort of a sub-methodology for context-based uh, social metrics called the social footprint method. And um, But water, just, just to take that one as an example, and all, all of these are intended to be, you know, there are always thresholds going on in these metrics. 
Uh, in this case, it's a carbon uh, uh, threshold. With respect to water, the, the, uh, the relevant context that we deal with, we look at water use at a facility level, and we focus on the characteristics of the watershed in which it's located. And again, in a similarly science-based way, turn to the science for an understanding of what the availability of renewable water resources is in a location or region-by-region region basis. And then we go through a similar allocation step. And that's really what this contribution to GDP conversation is, is, has been all about. You know, we've got this global threshold, uh, but how do we actually allocate a share of it uh, uh, to an individual organization? And we're using contribution to GDP as a proxy for doing that. And we do uh, something very similar with respect to water, but the geographic boundaries are very different and the underlying science is, is also very different. Excellent. Uh, Alan, if you could, one last question you said. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Absolutely true. Words were never spoken. I'm thank afraid you. we're out of time, uh, but thank you all for, for joining us today.